So, how are we doing? Barely breathing. <laughs> okay. Better. Oh, this is really helpful. I'm glad. Okay, good. <laughs> just wait, we're going to talk about shame in just a minute. Um, so, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the RUF Reformed University Fellowship Campus Minister. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all wherever and however you are. And what that means is basically our is for one kind of person. Um, it's for every kind of person. We want anyone from any kind of scene on campus or any personal background or even wherever you are with Jesus or God or Christianity, um, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or maybe you feel more comfortable somewhere in between those categories or, or maybe like bubble, none of the above. So whatever you are, we're really glad you're here, uh, however you categorize yourself. Thanks so much for coming. We hope you feel welcome. We hope you feel like you belong. I want to especially welcome people who are new. Um, thanks for taking the time, especially this time of the semester. That's awesome with you to do. So okay, this semester, we've been looking at the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. And we're studying the Psalms and the Proverbs together because they teach us how to process our lives. Okay, so we're, we're talking about what it means uh, in the Psalms and the Proverbs we're shown how to handle our emotions, how to treat our relationships, how to live more fully, more humanly, and more humanely here and now. And that's sort of the idea. It's like it's actually a very kind of functional, helpful set of books. They're called wisdom literature, and we're trying to kind of get some of the wisdom from them. And along these lines, we're... I always give you this really long title, which is basically my summary for the whole series, and here we go. It's usually a really short beginning title and a very long subtitle, so you'll be like, oh, it's simple, and they're like, whoa. So, sorting life, colon, uh, praying our emotions to God and applying God's wisdom to our decisions, our relationships, and ourselves. So, sorting life, praying our emotions to God and applying God's wisdom to our relationships, our decisions, and ourselves. That's what we're up to. That's what we're looking at. Um, and so we're, we've been looking first at the Psalms. We're almost through this little mini-series, this halfway point. Um, we'll do one more Psalm after spring break, and then I'm going to venture into Proverbs. Uh, so you can begin to pray. Um, but honestly, I really want to say again what I said two weeks ago, and I think it's on the back table. It's the handout. Okay, so there's a handout I made. I really want us to actually try and pray the Psalms. And I've given you a handout to kind of actually take your emotions to the Psalms, and it's arranged by emotion on the left-hand side and some Psalms that correspond on the right-hand side. And if you flip it over on the back, there's actually a, a little quick how-to guide, like changing the Lord God or Lord or God to second person you, praying out loud, those sort of things. And then there's some reflection questions just to kind of ask yourself as you meditate on Scripture. So that's kind of a helpful thing. I'll remind you about it hopefully at the end. But feel free to take one of those, use it, don't use it, use it as a bookmark, whatever. Um, it's there for you. It's a rough cut, so I'm working on it still, and hopefully I have something by the end of the semester. It's a little bit more final. Also, I wanted to kind of second what Celia was talking about with the ALS fundraiser. Um, we're really trying to do this pretty big service project. And I just really, if you could talk to Celia or email her, that would be awesome. Just, I think that's really important for us to get behind. Um, it's actually an alum that I graduated here 
um, actually I think she was my class, who is one of the people behind that fundraiser. So I really appreciate us to be a part of that. Anyway, April 1st. So anyway, so tonight we're looking at Psalms, we're looking at Psalm 25, and we're talking about and processing and praying the feeling of shame. Shame. So before we look at the shameful moments and try to connect them to God in prayer, uh, would you pray with me uh, and for me and with us and for us? Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to be together, uh, to talk about your words to us and to talk about some topics that maybe we don't talk about enough. And I pray that you would be with the conversation, that you would be with my words, um, with our ears and our hearts, that you would help um, keep the things that are worth keeping and toss the things that are worth tossing. I pray, Father, that you would be with these students. I know they're in very different spaces. Some of them are busy. Some of them have never been less busy. Um, and I pray that you um, would keep our attention uh, fixed in your word. And ultimately, Lord, that you prick our hearts, that you move us, that you change us for the better that you would help us to see Jesus, and we would see him high and lifted up, that he would become more beautiful and believable to the eyes of our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, it all started with a prank phone call. I was in the sixth grade, and my friend James had given my home phone number to a group of friends of his that were girls in his class, and they decided to repeatedly call me one early Saturday evening over and over and over again. Um, that got old pretty fast, um, and I'm not sure why, but a couple of days later, the, the lead phone pranker, uh, a girl by the name of Suzanne, called a few days later. And I'm not exactly, again, sure why she called. I'm not sure whether she called out of curiosity about who I was, or whether she actually had some remorse and wanted to apologize. But Suzanne called, and we started to talk. Soon we began talking on the regular, almost every night, and eventually, I'm not sure how, uh, but it was clear that we were boyfriend and girlfriend and we were dating. And we had never actually met. <laughs> Sixth grade. Um, several weeks later, we decided that we should meet in person. I mean, that makes sense, right? So I can still remember that Saturday pretty vividly. Um, it was sunny. I had picked out my favorite Nike hoodie sweatshirt. I was running a little bit late, shocking, I know. Um, and so in order to be on time, I skipped the shower and put on a hat. It's a decision that would haunt me for a very long time, perhaps a little too long of a time. Anyway, I went over to my friend James's house, and from there we met Suzanne and her friends, and I realized from the very beginning that this was not going well, that she was just not into me. Looking back on that moment like with some maturity, I can imagine that maybe the phone relationship was some sort of novelty, and she kind of wore off when she saw me, and it wasn't that cool anymore. She got bored. But at the time, I was pretty convinced that Suzanne didn't like the look at me, of me. She saw something about me when we met in person that she just didn't think was boyfriend material. That I just wasn't good enough. Not surprisingly, we broke up a few days later. I'm going to let you in the secret. She dumped me. Um, again, not surprising. And I felt like I was literally going to shrivel up. I felt, in the words of our passage, put to shame. 
few days later, it gets better, my friend James asked me how we were doing, how Suzanne and I were doing, and uh, I told him that what had happened, that we broke up, but then I took a deep breath and I completely lied. I told James that I broke up with Suzanne because her nose was too big. True. <laughs> Eventually the truth came out that that was not the case, and my lie just made things more shameful and worse. So, not surprisingly, the shame made me very reluctant in a long time coming to actually date again, um, to, to show my interest in somebody and to try that thing out. But much more surprisingly, I'm still embarrassed about that. I still feel a lot of shame about what happened in sixth grade, um, that I got ignored, looked at, ignored, then dumped. All of my sixth grade insecurities about how I looked and who I was were completely exposed and are still in many ways with me. I didn't feel like enough at that moment. I feel in some ways unworthy or disgusting in a core or a self level, and that's just what shame is. And I could really give you some abstract definitions of what shame is. We could go to the counseling or whatever else, but I think we all know shame when we feel it. We all have some idea of what shame feels like universally, right? And perhaps me as a sixth grader with hack hair and lying lips kind of capture a shame in an image. That's what I want you to kind of stick with for a second, okay? But our passage tonight, Psalm 25, even the first three verses of Psalm 25 challenge us to ask some serious questions to our shame. Okay, we need to ask a few questions. Okay, the first question we need to ask is, where does this feeling of shame come from? Where does the feeling of shame come from? And the second set of questions, how do we handle shame? What do we do about our shame? Do we shrivel up and shut down? Do we just start picking at something that's wrong with me? Do I lie and lash out? Do I find something that's wrong with that? Psalm 25 offers this really thoughtful diagnosis and a startling remedy for shame. It's so interesting. According to Psalm 25, shame comes from mistaking who I am for what I do. And shame comes from mistaking who I am for what other people think of me. Okay, so shame comes from mistaking who I am for what I do. And shame also comes from mistaking who I am for what other people think of me. And what's so beautiful about this psalm is, therefore, God meets us in our shame. And he re redefines who I am. And he redefines who I am by making known what he, God, does and what he, God, thinks of me. So it's amazing. So if shame is about mistaking who I am for what I do and what other people think of me, God meets us in our shame and redefines who I am by showing us, making known what he does and what he thinks of me. Is that everybody tracking with that? So Psalm 25 is an acrostic poem. Okay? Acrostic is a literary term. It means basically that each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew Bible, and it's in alphabetical order. Okay, so... That might be easy for like memorization, for use of the temple, or it might give us some idea that this psalm is comprehensive about its topic, like, you know, this is the A to Z treatment of shame, okay? 
But I think for my purposes, it just basically means it's going to be a little bit messy on the outline tonight. Okay? Uh, I counted 13 petitions. That is 13 times where David, the psalmist, asks God for something. And the themes of these petitions I kind of roughly group into four topics. So I'm going to go by four topics, and I'm going to give you sort of scattered verses. And if you're ahead of me, you can just start looking at your outline. But let me just sort of say, I think the three first three topics are the sources of our shame, and the final topic is the solution to our shame. So we're going to look at three sources to our shame, and then one solution to our shame. So again, this is condensed. There's a condensed version on your handout. But first, verses 4 through 5 and 8 through 10, they describe the first source of shame, which I'm calling vocation. Okay, vocation. What we will do and how these good things have a certain kind of tyranny over us. So we're going to look at vocation, the idea of what we will do and how these good things have a kind of tyranny over us. Second, we're going to look at verses 6 through 7 and then 11 and then 16 through 18. And we're looking at the second source of shame, guilt. Okay. What we did do and how these bad things can have a certain kind of tyranny over us. Okay. So what we did do and what, how these bad things can have a certain kind of tyranny over us. Okay. Third, verses 19 through 20, we're looking at the third source of shame, okay. other people's opinion. Other people's opinion. What other people think and how our enemies can have a certain kind of tyranny over us. Okay. What other people think and how our enemies can have a certain kind of tyranny over us. And then fourth and finally, we're looking at verses 12 through 15 and 21 through 22, and we're describing the solution to shame, God's friendship. The solution to shame, God's friendship. How what God did and will do, as well as what God thinks, can give us a certain kind of look at how God's friendship, what he did, what he will do, and what he thinks of us can offer us a certain kind of freedom. So we're going to get as close to the beginning as I can get. Okay, we're going to look at first, the first surprising source of shame. This is maybe the most surprising one of all of these, and that is the future good things we'll do, vocation. We're going to start in verse 4. But before I get there, I just want you to see verses 1 through 3 very quickly um, touch on all four of the things we're about to talk about. And really, we see in verse 4, Psalm of David starts to get to work. Okay, verses 4 through 5, verses 8 through 10, David asks the Lord to know his ways, to know God's paths. What are God's paths and what are God's ways? David wants guidance. Does that make sense? He wants guidance. He wants to know what to do. He wants to know what he will do. He wants to know his vocation. That's the way we talk about it now. He wants to know God's path, his, his ways. He wants to know what he'll do, what David will do, and what, what he will be up to, his vocation. But look, it's so interesting because David's kind of questions, his petitions have this for future guidance. They have a certain flavor to them. It's a peculiar flavor. The flavor is he wants to know God's truth, verse 5. He wants to know what's right, verse 9. He wants to know God's steadfast love and faithfulness, verse 10. And I think this is really interesting. I'm going to paraphrase a commentator here, so don't think anything that I'm about to say is anything to do with me. Okay, but I think basically that the psalmist's prayers are shaping our heart's desires away from asking to read God's mind. Okay, we're moving away from trying to get 
what exactly is next for me? And it's moving us towards, instead of reading God's mind, it's, the psalmist David is asking for God's mind itself. He's asking for God's wisdom. He's asking for God's truth. He's asking for God's peace. He's asking for God's loving, steadfast character. Does that make sense? And so like all of us, God, David, like all of us, wants to know what's next. He wants to know the circumstances. He wants to know the people. He wants to know everything that's coming up. But David would actually prefer to have the ability to handle what's next well. He cares more about the adverbs, how he's going to handle something, than he cares about the nouns and the verbs. He wants the most wisdom, the most truth, the best peace, the best character. He wants God's wisdom, God's peace, God's truth, and God's character. And really, this is super, if you think about this, it's like very challenging. Okay, it's extremely challenging. It's challenging what we want, or maybe just what we think we want. Like, look, you, like many Davidson students, and I'm going to let you in the secret, many Davidson ministers, okay, we feel so oppressed, so ashamed by the pressure of the many, many good things we ought to be doing. Who we are gets so quickly wrapped up in what we will be doing. Who we are gets so quickly wrapped up in what we'll be doing. We mistake our identities for our vocation. Who we are for what we will do. And it's like it's like we hear the footsteps of that future me, that future somebody coming down the corridor. Um, and you know, I, I just don't want to miss out. And so I'm going to sign up for the Davidson Olympics. Okay, I'm going to be a participant, and you know what's going to happen? We fill our schedules, you know, just, just in case. I don't want to miss something. And we refuse to stop or rest. You know, I just don't want to fall behind everybody else. And if you have faith, it's almost worse, because it just becomes another thing to add to the list of things to excel at. Or it becomes another way to feel ashamed, because I really shouldn't be this stressed out. Because I believe in someone, something, for Pete's sake. But this amazing African-American college professor and RUF alumnus, I'm going to consistently say that, he graduated from RUF at Clemson, Anthony Bradley, helpfully picks up this plea, Psalm 25's plea for guidance. And he shows us like a very different kind of faith. Not a faith that feels like one more thing, but a faith that completely changes the conversation. It's a faith that wonderfully frees us from the shame of letting down our future selves. It's a faith that frees us from the deadliness of doing extra good. Here's how he puts it. This is Anthony Bradley. You don't need to have impact. You don't need to be a leader. I wish we could cancel every high school leadership conference in the country. Useless. You don't need to transfer transform society. You don't need to change the world. You don't need to fix your city. You don't need to win. You don't need to start a nonprofit. You don't need to be on top. You don't need to have a 4.0 or maybe a Davidson just a 3.5. If you're united to Christ Jesus by faith, you are beyond adequate. You cannot be more successful, more awesome, more amazing than you already are right now today. It's impossible for you to be more successful, more accomplished, more strong, 
more equipped by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost than you are right now by your union with Christ by faith. It's impossible to be better than that. Don't worry. Today, you're free to make it your ambition to live a quiet life and to work with your hands and to mind your own business and to lose yourselves in loving God and loving neighbor because you're beyond enough. You can let all the anxiety and all the perfectionism go because it was nailed to the cross of Christ permanently and forever. It's over. Of course, that's a quite an overstatement. And everyone's really angry right now. I can't believe it. There's so many problems in the world. Okay, like, he's slightly overstating it, but don't you get the point? And here's the point. Of course, yes, do good. Of course, I want you to do good. Okay? But I want you to understand you don't have to. God doesn't need you. God wants you. That's a huge difference. And what you do doesn't have to be flipping amazing. It doesn't have to be like hanging on a lamppost, game changer amazing. It doesn't. If you if the good you will do is a have to in your life, if the good you will do is a have to in your life, you will feel shame about who you are. In addition to the shame over the good will do vocation, Psalm 25 picks up a second source of shame. The shame over the bad we did or guilt. Point two in your outline. Okay, so we'll prove them. In verses 6, 7, 11, 16, and through 18, David is identifying another location of shame. He puts it, the sins of my youth and for my transgression, verse 7, my guilt, verse 11, my affliction and my trouble, and all my sins, verse 18. But notice, like, the psalmist isn't just, like, fingering his guilt, getting some kind of sick pleasure out of hurting himself, okay? No, David is showing us how to plead our guilt to God. He's showing us how to ask God to remember it not, verse 7. He's asking for pardon. That is, God to lift up and to carry and take away our guilt, verse 11. And what's so amazing is I don't actually have to make this case. I don't have to theologically prove guilt, the existence of guilt. Our shame actually does that for us. It's amazing. Not only does shame explain the existence of guilt, it also explains the need for guilt. According to shame expert and TED Talk phenomenon, <laughs> Brene Brown, okay, we all live with this vague sense of unease, a sense that everything's not right with the world and right with me. And guilt actually allows us to say, I did something bad, I'm sorry. I made a mistake, would you forgive me? And there's this like possibility with that that you can move on with life. But without guilt, shame takes over and forces us to say, not I did something bad, but I am bad. And so when we apologize, all of a sudden it becomes, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Not, I made a mistake. And there's no person in the world who can forgive someone else's existence. And there's no moving on. And so Brene Brown shows in the research there's this extremely high correlation 
between shame and addiction, shame and depression, shame and violence, shame and aggression, shame and bullying, shame and suicide, and shame and disordered eating. Okay, and this is against guilt, because guilt actually has an inverse correlation. That is, guilt actually leads to less addiction. Guilt actually leads to less depression. Guilt actually leads to less aggression, less disordered eating, and less suicide. Simply put, guilt is not the problem, shame is. This is all very countercultural. Okay? For years, the Western world, Europe and North America, have been saying guilt is the problem, and shame has just continued to spike. Okay? Often the form of depression and anxiety. We have record numbers of that culturally. Writer Walker Percy pointed this out decades ago in a novel called Love in the Ruins. Anyone familiar with this beauty? Okay? In this book, there's this amazing scene where the main character, named after Thomas More, his name is Thomas More, and it's going to be confusing, okay, tries to explain his anxious and depressed condition to his therapist, Max Gottlieb. Okay? Gottlieb is trying to understand Moore's anxiety by asking about how Moore feels when he talks about the many and simultaneous sexual affairs that Moore's having at once. He's literally sleeping with three to four women at that moment. Okay? And the therapist, Gottlieb, states this. You are saying that lovemaking is not a natural activity, like eating and drinking? And the main character, Moore, says, no, I didn't say it wasn't natural. Gottlieb says, but sinful and guilt-laden. Moore says, no, not guilt-laden. Then Gottlieb continues, I understand. Since it's sinful, guilt feelings follow, even though it's a pleasure. And Moore says, no, actually, they don't follow. Gottlieb says, then what worries you if you don't feel guilty? And Moore says, that's what worries me, not feeling guilty. That's what worries me, not feeling guilty. You see, it's so interesting that the main character, Thomas Moore, epitomizes the modern condition that doesn't allow for sin. He has a shame-based worry, a spreading shame based in not feeling guilt. We often feel so bad about who we are, shame, instead of feeling bad about what we've done, guilt. So our behavior, what we do, becomes our identity, who we are. And so Jesus' work of pardon, the cross's forgiveness, never actually quite feels finished. Because what we do is who we are. Our behavior has become our identity. And Jesus' pardon doesn't feel like it's enough. Is everyone tracking? Point three. Psalm 25 not only points to what we will do, vocation, and what we did do, guilt, as sources of shame, okay, about who we are. Psalm 25 also points to a third source of shame. That is, other people's negative opinion of us can cause shame. And this is point three. Look, verses 19 through 20 pick up where verses 2 and 3 left off. And I'm going to read phrases from all four verses together. So here it goes. Let not my enemies exult or gloat over me. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not let me <clears throat> let not me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. 
And look, most commentators agree that the enemies here are more political and social than military. So immediately when we think of enemies in the Bible, we think warfare. We think David's under assault in the Psalms. Um, look at the way they're described. They're described as treacherous, verse 3. They're, even the, the phrase violent hatred in verse 19 is probably more about that their hatred is harsh or severe than it's actually physical. That's what most commentators think. But still, like the world, the word enemies and like the, the life and times of David and the Psalms can feel like miles, miles, millennia away from our current experience in Davidson, North Carolina in the 21st century. But I want to sort of say that the biblical concept of enemy, enemy is intentionally quite broad. Enemy is a broad concept. It's a broad idea. It includes anyone who treats you unjustly, anyone who makes a judgment or forms an opinion about you that's unfair, even if you only think that's unfair. That would be the category of enemy. And so let me just put it this way. At the small school like Davidson College, we are constantly in the face of this. We're constantly carrying the weight of other people's opinions, which are often quite unfair. Everybody knows everybody's business. They know what you did, and they know what you didn't do. And reputations, good and bad, perceive people. You know about people before you meet them. Students and even faculty are stained by a habit, frozen in time by a moment. It could be a nickname. It could just be a set of expectations that someone's going to act in a certain way, like be crazy and fun, or just disappear in plain sight as simple as that. And shame really comes from that moment when we get called out as different. Shame comes from that moment when we feel lonely and lost and maybe even a little gross. And maybe I get embarrassed about who I am. At a bigger school, New Mexico State University, I pastored there for four years, there was a girl who transferred and immediately struggled to fit in. Her first few weeks were really hard on her and hard for her. Okay? She felt lonely and she felt desperate to find friends. And so Ellen went to several parties and drank way too much. She drank so much that she made a scene. She made such a big scene that she made a campus-wide name for herself. Ellen became Drunk Ellen. And she was actually introduced to me as Drunk Ellen at my REF meeting. That's how well known that, that, that was. And it came up to me as Ellen came a few times. It became clear. Someone mentioned it. I heard somewhere that Ellen was failing at math. So I connected her with this other student, a computer science major named Ethan. Ethan volunteered to help Ellen with math. And he did. And it was amazing to watch the results, the transformation of Ethan's tutoring of Ellen. Ethan didn't know anything about drunk Ellen's reputation. Everyone wrongly thought she was dumb because of her nickname and her math grades. But Ethan treated Ellen so politely. He treated her with such dignity, week in and week out, that Ellen actually began to change. It was hard to see at first, a subtle optimism, a slight smile, a few right answers of math. But eventually, through Ethan's kindness and friendship, Ellen began to see herself differently. She began to mentally move from drunk Ellen back to just Ellen. Ellen created with dignity and beauty power and purpose in the image of God. Ethan's opinion, his close quarters friendship, began ever so slightly 
to lift Ellen's shame. And what Ethan's friendship did to Ellen's shame is a dim reflection of the freedom of God's friendship, a solution to shame, and our fourth and final point this evening. I know we're full. It's a lot. Of, I've thrown a lot at you, but I've saved the best for last. <laughs> Okay, so please bear with me. Verses 12 through 15 describe the friendship of the Lord, and verses 21 through 22 describe how did we get to experience the friendship of the Lord. We get it by eagerly, intensely waiting for it. A posture of hope. Okay? And here's the deal. Our shame from guilty weight of bad things we did or from the fearful pressures of the good things we're going to do, all this shame cannot be moved by what we do. And to loosely quote a favorite of mine, Frederick Beekner, it's about as hard to absolve yourself of your own shame as it is to sit in your own lap. Okay, it's about as hard to absolve yourself of your own shame as it is to sit in your own lap. What he's saying is it's impossible. Okay, it's impossible to melt the shame from what you did and what you will do by what you do right now. Does that make sense? It's impossible to melt the shame from what you did past tense, what you will do future tense, by what you're doing present tense. Just doesn't work. We need somebody else's actions. Jesus, who was put to shame, whose enemies exalted over him, so that none who wait for God would be ashamed. Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame for people like us, the God who chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and who chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God promises this upside-down, holy rejoicing in the foolishness and weakness. He promises well-being and inheritance because he made a spectacle of shame on the cross of Christ. He takes our shame, he turns it against himself, all so that we can freely love and be loved, whether we're weak or strong, foolish or wise. But God also deals so mightily with our shame that comes from the stain of what other people think of us. This kind of shame cannot be fully removed by who we hang out with. But good relationships are a good start, aren't they? In the words, again, of Frederick Buechner, we need, we need friends before whom we can put aside the disguise, trusting that when they see us for what we fully are, they won't run away screaming with laughter. Our trust in them leads us to trust their trust in us. For a moment, at least, the vicious circle stops circling, and we can step down onto firm ground of their acceptance where maybe we'll walk a straight line with them. We do need these kind of friends. And I know some of us may have some of these friends who do this some of the time. But what Beekner is describing is what the friendship of the Lord does unflinchingly, unswervingly, always, at any time, and in any place. Because he has sworn a covenant oath to confide in those who can fearfully and wonderfully take him, God, at his word. God counts us, by faith, as close friends, as his confidants. But 
I really think this is really abstract and hard to follow. Okay? What does it mean to possess that kind of worth? A value that comes from outside of us, right? A value that comes outside of the sum of our actions, comes outside even of the sum of other people's opinions of us. Like, what does that mean? What is that about? And that's why I'm thankful for my friend Ricky Jones and my final story that's his story. I'll close with this. Okay, when his son was about four years old, um, he took him to go buy some new shoes, and his son took his teddy bear named Rattlebear. Okay, Rattlebear was called Rattlebear because it had a rattle sewed inside of it, and it rattled every time you moved it. And Rattlebear went everywhere with Ricky's son, no matter where he went, including buying new shoes, right? And so they get to the shoe store, they get new shoes, they come back, and they realize the next morning, in a panic, that Rattlebear did not come home. Rattlebear stayed at the shoe store, maybe trying on teddy bear shoes, I don't know what's going on there, but he didn't make it back, and the son wakes up in a panic, Ricky wakes up in a panic, he runs back to the mall, uh, and goes to every store they visited the day before in order, asking for, looking for Rattlebear. And finally he comes to the shoe store and an employee remembers Rattlebear. And he goes, that gray dingy thing that rattles when you pick it up? And Ricky goes, yeah. He goes, I'm sorry, we threw it away. So, like every mall store in America, this shoe store shared a dumpster with Subway. <laughs> So Ricky finds himself in a dumpster, 110 degrees Fahrenheit, in the Mississippi Delta, okay, opening up Subway trash bags, pouring out the contents, and combing through the Subway sandwich scraps that are spoiled by the sun. Okay? Until he triumphantly lifts up his hand and finds Rattlebear and comes home a hero. But then, as he thinks to himself, what in the world am I doing? Why in the world? I climb through a dumpster of subway, which smells bad enough sometimes, outside of the dumpster. <laughs> Sorry, subway fans. It's pretty good for fast food. The, but look, think about it. Rattlebear was gross, Rattlebear was worn out, and now Rattlebear is germ-ridden, right? Not only was it not valuable, it had like almost a negative value, okay? Probably would have been better just to throw it away. But it was valuable enough to Ricky to go through the trash for. Why? Because his son loved it. You're valuable because of how much you've been loved. You're important because the God of the universe put his son to shame for you. He gave his only son, Jesus, to die like a criminal, to take the shame from you. And that's a value that can't be lost. No matter what you do, no matter whether what other people think of you, you could smell like Subway sandwiches. You can have hat hair and lying lips. You can be busy. You can feel sorry for not feeling sorry. But I want you to know something. God can love you then and there as you are. He sees you as you really are, naked and afraid. And he rears back on his heels. He opens his wide his arms. He shouts out loud, you are absolutely, totally worth it. Forever and ever, amen. You're worth every particle I ever made. You're worth every raindrop I ever sent. 
You're worth every blood spatter on the cross 2,000 years ago. You're worth every shame-singed tear. You are worth it. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I do it all over again. Would you pray with me? Father, a lot of this is hard to take and there's a lot going on. And the minute we mention shame, it feels like Pandora's box. And it feels like we're just subsumed with negative thoughts. I confess that's what it's felt like last week. And I pray that you um, would still our hearts that you'd shush our minds, that you'd remind us that we're far more worthy than rattle bear, and that you love us more than a son, more than a father in a dumpster, that you love us more than words can say. In Jesus' name.